0: Well, good morning. Um, as we already said, uh, my name is Dan Seidelman. I'm a pastor up in Commerce Township, uh, Union Lake Baptist Church. And uh, thank you so much for having me. This is a, a great, it's a privilege to be able to um, be in the pulpit and to bring God's word to you this morning. Um, I don't know what it is about us as Christians, Uh Maybe it's that our memory has gone bad. you know, In your mid-30s, you have what, what my mom calls senior moments all the time. Um, maybe we're ignorant. We've never actually been taught the truth. Or maybe we've actively been, been taught lies and harmful things. But something doesn't line up with us. Because I'm confident if I were to say to you, actually, I don't know you. I'm, I'm going to take back my confidence. My, if you're like my church, this won't work. I mean, we are... We're reserved. We never talk back during a sermon. I mean, we're the kind of church where somebody raises their hand during worship and the, the musicians stop to answer questions. Like, we're not expressive. Um, I'm going to try it, though. If I were to say, God is good, somebody would say, Amen. all the time. Right we, we, We've heard this before, and I say it all the time, and they say, "God is good." And I don't doubt that any of us actually actually believe this on Sunday mornings, um, but then we hit one little speed bump in our life, one minor inconvenience, and we're not so certain. like, why doesn't my car have a dead battery? I thought God was good. Or we hit several major afflictions unspeakable sufferings, dark nights of the soul that turn into dark days of depressive fog, and our theology just goes out the window. If God was good, this never would have happened to me. We immediately forget who God is and what he does. That, that's not just me, right? That, that's all of us. And so what I want to do this morning is simply remind us of a truth that we already know, I want to remind us of the goodness of God. And, and I'm going to do that just from one verse. Um, it's Psalm 119, verse 68. You can go ahead and open there. And this isn't going to be difficult this morning. It's a, it's a holiday weekend. You've got to substitute. Like I'm not going to make this hard on you. I'll read the, voice, the verse, and you'll see my outline immediately. Three points, and I'm done. God is good. God does good. God teaches us Goodness. Not, not the other way around. So we're, we're Psalm 119, verse 68, but let's read the entire chapter to get the context. I'm kidding. No, Psalm 119, you might, it, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. Um, you know, it's 176 verses. Uh, but, but I will read the, the section that's in because you might know Psalm 119, it's an acrostic poem. Um, you have this extended meditation of the goodness of God shown through his law and you have 22 different stanzas or sections, one for each letter of the alphabet, the, the Hebrew one, not English, 22. Um, and then the first line of each section starts with that letter. So, Aleph, 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 Gimel, I think it's been a minute since I did Hebrew. Um, so each letter is, is starting a section. And so let me read ours, starting in verse 65. It reads this way. You have treated your servant well, Lord, according to your word. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good, and you do good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will comply with your precepts. Their heart is insensitive, like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, so that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. So as I already mentioned, all I want to do is to look at this one verse, verse 68, and show you three things about God, specifically that he is good, that he does good, And he teaches us goodness so that we'll live in light of this goodness, especially as we relate to him and to our circumstances and to others around us. So what are these things about God? Well, first, God is good. I'm getting this from our verse, right? Verse 68, it reads, you are good. I I don't need to explain a lot how I get from the text to my point, right? The text says you are good. I'm saying God is good. It doesn't say God is has goodness. It says that God is good. Spurgeon would explain that this is the difference between a pot or bowl that's made out of wood or metal or or stone and coated with gold and one that's made completely of gold. One of them has gold. The other is gold. God doesn't have goodness. He is good through and through. It's an essential attribute of who he is. God is good. I'm not going to make the text difficult, but we're we're going to dive in and do a little bit of theology together this morning. So take a deep breath. I'm going to throw you into the deep end. Um, I won't let you drown. I think we'll enjoy this, right? The modern way that we'd like to think about God and his attributes is to take everything that we think might be true of God um, and put them as kind of the slices of the pie of God's character, right? Right? Maybe one day we're served up the slice of God's love. On another day, we're served up a slice of God's wrath. You know, the other pieces of the pie are the omnis, right? God's omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence. They're all there, and God can kind of serve up whatever piece of his character he wants to that day. It's a natural way to think, right? This is how we act. I have the ability to be kind to my kids or to be angry with my kids. And what kind of dad they get depends on the day. We can be wise. We can be foolish. There's no consistency with us. And so we tend to create God in our image and say this is the way God acts. Maybe just he's a little bit better at it than we are. And so we have this, this conglomeration of attributes that we call God. And he may or may not be greater than the sum of his parts. Because is he just? Or is he merciful? Depends on what slice of divine pie we're getting that day. It's not a good way to think about God. That's not how the Bible thinks about God. That's not how the church has historically thought about God either. Rather, instead of saying God has attributes, the way we want to talk is God is his attributes. Right? The theological term, if you want that, would be that God is simple. The doctrine of divine simplicity. That God is one thing, not many parts. Um, so let's keep the pie analogy. Everybody loves pie. Um, but we'll shift from talking about slices of the pie to maybe ingredients of the pie, right? Every slice of pecan pie is going to be the same, right? You have all the identical ingredients in every single slice, right? It's never, you never go up to a pecan pie and you take, okay, here's my slice of egg, here's my slice of corn syrup, Here's my slice of cinnamon. Here's my slice of vanilla. No, all the ingredients are in every piece. They're not separated. They're not in parts. They're all mixed together. Every piece, every time. Every bite has brown sugar and vanilla and, br- and uh, corn syrup and pecans and everything else. Right? Every bit of the pie is all the ingredients, all the time. God is all of his attributes, all the time. God is good, all the time. All the time, God is good. Which Here's what I'm trying to get at. Here's what I want us to understand. Goodness isn't something God has, but it's something that he is. I want us to understand the difference between saying God has goodness in him and it may or may not shine through any given situation and saying God is completely good and everything he does is good. Right? I have a... Dry, sarcastic, some would say unfunny sense of humor. It may shine through in a given situation, inappropriate or not, or it may not. But no one would say dry wit is what makes Dan a human, or even what makes Dan, Dan. I have it, but it's not me. What the psalmist is saying, though, is God is good. Like John would say over in 1 John 5, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is good, and in him is no evil, no badness, no sub-good things at all. Right? Goodness isn't just a slice of who God is. It's one of his main ingredients. Through and through, God is good in every aspect, in every action. He's wholly good, only good, can't be anything besides being good. It is who he is, and it is what he is. Of course, there's more ingredients than goodness in God. He's not one note, one dimension. But, I mean, for this verse, for this sermon, we're focusing on the goodness of God. And anything else he's going to be, it's going to be flavored, to use the analogy, by by the goodness of God. Right? God can't stop being one of his attributes to be another. And the pecan pie, the eggs taste like pecans, and the corn syrup tastes like Brown sugar, because it's all mixed together. It's inseparable. Every ingredient is layered on top of the other, so you have them all, all the time, which means everything in God is going to be shaped, it's going to be formed, it's going to be flavored by his goodness. And this is phenomenal news because it means there's great consistency in God. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. God's not going to wake up tomorrow some way different than he is today. He, God never wakes up on the wrong side of the bed and acts different than the way he's always acted. No, God can't sweep aside his goodness and have a day off of being good. It, it's his very essence. It's who he is which should just be great comforting news to us. Also means we should uh, be careful in calling things attributes of God. Um, because, as I mentioned earlier, we can assign anything to God as an attribute. It's just kind of willy-nilly. But if, if this is true, what happens if you call something like wrath an attribute of God? Um, yeah, go with me two minutes here. Um, Think about wrath. If this is an attribute of God, then what we're saying is God is never not acting wrathfully, right? It's who he is. It's what he is. In creation, God is wrathful. In redemption, wrath. At Jesus' baptism, when God spoke, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, those were words flavored by his wrath. And that just doesn't line up, does it? should make us ask, is wrath actually an attribute of God? Is it essential to his being? Or is this the outplay of something more foundational, something more basic, like when God's holiness and his goodness and his love run up against evil, then holy righteous love expresses itself in wrath. I use that as an example, right? Because I think a lot of our coldness towards God sometimes comes from misunderstanding who he is. We think of him at his core, at his foundation, at his most basic level, as a you know, a wrathful executor, or only as our judge. But those things are secondary. God does judge. God does perform acts of wrath. But they're not essential to who he is. They're not what make God God, And so if we think deeply about who God is and what he is, when we think deeply about theology, at least for me, it's not something that I like to do while splitting hairs in the ivory tower. It's, it's incredibly devotional to me because we start to love God for who he is, a God of goodness and holiness and righteousness and love. And so I get it The ironically, the doctrine of divine simplicity is complex to wrap our minds around, that everything that God is, is God. Um, That there are no parts, that there are no distinctions in the character of God. The way I tend to think of it is if you rewind the tape before creation, you know, if you go back before Genesis 1, So you ask the question, what was God doing during the table of contents, right? Before we get to Genesis 1. That's a terrible joke. What was God like then? When all there was was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in happy community, what was true of God then? Because we know God doesn't change, so whatever he was like before creation is what he still is. When all there was was the Godhead in happy harmony for an eternal past, what was true of God then? Was God loving? Absolutely he was. The Father loves the Son and Spirit, and the Son, the Spirit, and the Father, and the Spirit, the Father, and Son. Was God good? Absolutely. Was God holy? You bet he was. And those are the things that are the essential attributes of God. So when we say God is good, what we're saying is for all eternity, God is good and will always be good. There's no variation of shadow in his character due to change. Which leads to point number two. God does good. Right? The, the, the psalmist says, you are good and you do good. Now, I, I don't intentionally teach my kids bad theology. The oldest is four. I don't teach them divine simplicity yet either. Um, but we do occasionally sing with loud, you know, vivacious mo- motions that my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, and there's nothing my God cannot do, which is great, until you start reading, I don't know, Titus 1, 2, that says, and God, who cannot lie, and you're like, wait a second, the cucumber told me there's nothing my God cannot do, and now Paul is saying that God can't lie, well, like, whether I do, do I trust Paul, or do I trust the produce? Um, and you run into this existential crisis. Now, this is pure speculation, but I think the song just gets ruined if you sing, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do, except for things that would contradict or betray his own character. Like, it's not snappy, it doesn't rhyme, it's not in rhythm. And so I'm, I'm not canceling the song because of incomplete theology. Um, but it's true, right? God's character is a standard of God's actions. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2:13 says that God cannot deny himself. He can't do something that would make him not God. He can't do anything contradictory to being God. God cannot lie. Titus 1:2 because God is a God of righteousness and of truth and of holiness. God cannot do evil or do wrong or anything less than good because he is good. I mean, we often rejoice that God can do all things, and, and I'm there with us. But what about the things God can't do? Those, those are worth rejoicing in as well. Um, a few years ago, Jackie Hill Perry wrote a book on God's holiness. I think it's called Holier Than Now. And the point of the book is not to hold God's holiness over your head and be like, look how holy God is. If you screw up, he's going to. I'm sorry. Um, microphone is, is potent. Um, rather, she says, God's holiness is good news about God. Here's her argument. She says, since God is holy, that means he cannot sin. Another thing God can't do. And if God can't sin, that means he cannot sin against you. So one of the things that separates God from everybody else is that God is fully trustworthy. He's the only fully trustworthy being in all existence. He's never going to turn against you. He's never going to sin against you. Your friends, your family, your spouse, they all sin against you. God cannot do that. Because of God's holiness, when he says he's for you, he's absolutely for you. It'd be impossible for him to do anything different. Using the same logic, because of God's goodness, everything he does is good it's impossible for him to do anything different. He can't do bad to you. He doesn't have that ability. It would be a betrayal of his character. He would cease to be God. So, so when God says of the new covenant, this is Jeremiah 32, um, verse 40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts, and they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land of faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. He actually means it. He can't do anything not good for his people. He rejoices in doing good for them. God is good. He does good. He won't turn away from doing good. He actually rejoices in doing us good. And maybe you're like, but that's the Old Testament. where well, I don't think that's valid, but, you know. I'll give you a New Testament one, too. There's a reason that Romans 8:28 is such a beloved promise, because we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His promise. So if you're in Christ, all things work together for good, not because that's how the blind hand of fate works, but that's how God's good, sovereign hand works. Even if we don't see it now, even if we don't understand the that's working together, God always works together for good. It's his unfailing goal. He's always going to reach it. Um, spent 10 years in Kentucky, and so this reminds me of the story of the old southern preacher. My wife's from Kentucky. She hates this, but I'm going to do it anyways. He goes to a prayer breakfast and asks one of the men to pray. Old man stands up and he bows his head and he says, Lord, I hate buttermilk. Preacher opens an eye and looks what's what's going on here? The man continues Lord I hate lard and preacher's getting worried, but without missing a beat. He goes, And you know how much I hate raw white flour. The preacher starts to stand up, he's 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 calling it. Breakfast is over. But the man continues, but Lord, when you mix them all together and bake them up, I sure do love them biscuits. So, when things come up we don't like and life gets hard, we just don't understand what you're saying to us. We just need to relax and wait till you're done mixing. It'll surely be better than biscuits. Amen. <laughs> Texas God is good. Nothing about stories being good. Um, But the point stands, right? Maybe we don't like the ingredients God is using. But if we know him and his works and his ways, we know that the ingredients are all coming together for our good. It gives us hope. We can endure because we know the end game. We don't need to doubt. We don't need to fret in the middle of it. He will do good. It's impossible for God to do otherwise. We don't need to tell him how he should act for our good. We just... Trust him to act for good. He knows better than we do. He's working good better than we are. Um, I mean, it's as, as the church is mourning the loss of Tim Keller, it, it's been encouraging to me to see all of the tributes and the quotes posted all around the internet of things that, um, that Keller said in his sermons and in his books. And uh, I read the other day, somebody posted, in prayer, God will either give us what we ask for or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything God knows. Like that's such a comforting thought, right? Our limited our knowledge is limited. Our wisdom is limited. Our love for ourselves is limited. And our goodness is certainly limited. But God's isn't. He has unlimited wisdom and love and power and goodness. And so it's by faith that we know that God is good and that we trust that God is good and does good. And we're we're satisfied by that truth. Which leads to point number three. God teaches us goodness. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. If you're familiar with this psalm, it's not a surprising request. Um, I I think in uh, Psalm 119, by my count, it's 14 different times that the psalmist prays things like teach me your statutes instruct me in your ways let me learn your law you know we got 22 stanzas and 14 times so that, that's at least every other stanza he's saying teach me your ways oh god um the first couple of years of my marriage was really difficult it wasn't because of anything wrong with us or our marriage um but we were just quickly thrown into this, this ocean of loss, of, of loss. right? We, in about 18, maybe 24 months, we attended funerals for her dad, for three grandparents, for one of our pastors, and for a close family friend, I should just say uncle, um, probably more than I'm forgetting, in a year and a half. And so we're trying to settle in and just start this life together, but we can't catch our breath between waves of grief upon grief upon grief. Um, We can't use vacation time for anything except traveling for funerals. And and I remember one day either saying to a friend or at least thinking, like, praise God my faith is intact through this season. Um, I had no doubt that God was good and did good. I believed, um, I mean, I held up. The, the, the verses that kept me afloat were Genesis eighteen twenty five, where Abraham says, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? But I learned in that season that I didn't actually understand what good meant. Uh, maybe I still don't, because God's understanding of good and my understanding clearly did not match up with one another. But what sustained me is knowing the character of God. That when there's a discrepancy between what I think is good and what God thinks is good, that God's ways are always right. My view of good is never actually good enough. It's never my job to teach God how to be good or how to act good. I don't teach him my goodness. I learn from God his goodness. He is always the instructor. We are always the students. That's the posture of the psalmist, right? Verse 68, teach me your statutes. Teach me your law. If we want to know goodness, it comes from learning it from God. This is all through the, 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 the psalm. Just look in our section. If we want to have good discernment and true knowledge, verse 66, it comes from God. If we want true delight, it's going to be in God and in his ways. Verse 70. If we want true value and treasure, it comes from knowing God's law, verse 72. So teach us your ways. Oh Lord, teach us to be like you, to think like you, to have wisdom like you, to have a heart like yours, to be discerning like you. I mean, so often our our default position is to arrogantly insist on our half-baked ideas of what is actually good and refuse to be humble enough to actually learn goodness from God. But he is good. He does good. And so for our good, we need to learn goodness from him. The psalmist prays, teach me your statutes. Um, other translations would say, teach me your rules or your laws or your commands or your decrees. It's, it's all the same idea. The reason the psalmist loves God's law so much isn't because the psalmist loves rules and having rules and keeping rules. He doesn't love regulations and three-ring binders filled with red tape and procedures on how to keep the rules and rules about the rules and, you know, the joy that comes from obeying rules and the disappointment that comes from breaking rules. No, psalmist loves God's law because a psalmist loves God. And we know God and his heart and his character. They're expressed to us through his word. And so in order to align his life with God's, in order to learn goodness from him, he seeks out his law so he can be like God, so he can be good the way that he was designed and created to be. It's by knowing God through his law, through his word, that we come to learn God's goodness. So as I said in the beginning, it's easy to confess God is good, but can you imagine how Wonderful! how delightful our lives would be if we actually believed it, if we believed God was good all the time. I mean, think of the far-reaching effects that this might have in our lives. Uh, consider how we relate to our circumstances, to our world around us. How much of our lives are spent murmuring and complaining, being impatient and, and with discontentment? Does does that complaining actually bring life and vitality to anyone? Or does it just drain you of the joy and the satisfaction of your existence? But wouldn't our lives be filled with so much more joy and gratitude if we believed, if we really believed that everything the Lord does is good and right? That in your given situation you're in right now, that this is a blessing. It comes from a sovereign hand designed to do you good. For your blessing. For your flourishing. I, I had to preach this this morning in the shower. When my day had already gone completely off my plans. Because um, in our murmuring. In our complaining. We're charging God with not being good. We assume that if God were good. Our lot would be better. It's the temptation of Eden, right? God has goodness, but he's not giving it to you. He's holding out on you. But whatever we have, it's for our good. Whatever we lack, it's for our good. It's not immediately pleasant, of course. No one's saying it is, but it yields a greater goodness, a greater pleasure. So by, by knowing God in his goodness, we can be freed of this this addiction to complaining and we can be re-enchanted to the world around us and the goodness that God has created. Like when my four-year-old daughter, when she goes into the backyard, she is thrilled that in the midst of the boring green grass, you have these little yellow flowers, you know, little sparks of beauty in a boring green world because she's 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 enchanted by beauty. She loves colors. Most kids are. She sees the goodness of God in creation and his hand all around her. She has joy and blessings in the created world because God gave it to her. And so she makes bouquets and throws them at me and gives them to her mom and her brother. And I see dandelions. Man, I'm going to have to spray again. I need to pull these ones because the spray's not working. I just... She jumps to enchantment. I jump to grumbling, right? My complaining always blinds me to the goodness of God, a God who gave me dandelions. And even though, I mean, Lord willing, they're not going to survive the long weekend, um, right now they're pretty. They're yellow. They're whimsical. Can't can we have a, like, how good is God that weeds, that thorns and thistles are part of the curse of, of the land, Genesis 3, right? This is just my own soapbox. You know, dandelions are part of the curse because thorns and thistles are part of the curse. This is to remind me of God's judgment on me and my suburban lawn. Um, but in God's kindness, the weeds look like flowers, and they're yellow and, you know, wispy, and they bring my kids joy. Can't can we just rejoice in God for a second about his kindness and creation before we go back to our regularly scheduled grumbling, I don't have joy in all things because we actually believe in the goodness of God. Or consider how we relate to God himself, right? So if God is this fountain of goodness, if he's the source of all goodness, the origin of goodness, that means he can't weary of doing good any more than a fountain or a sea or a river can weary of flowing. It's his very nature to pour out goodness. Um, All goodness delights to communicate itself, writes one Puritan. Infinite goodness then has an infinite delight in expressing itself. It's a part of his goodness not to be weary of showing it. How often do we neglect coming to God out of fear that one day we'll pump the well of his goodness dry? That he's generous and loving and patient to a point, but eventually will have overstayed our welcome and he'll get sick of doing us good. So we need to, we need to ration our request of God so that we never get to that point. That's how we act. That's not how God acts. No, God delights in being good. He delights in doing good. He doesn't tire of your prayers. He doesn't get sick of coming to you. Because every time you pray, he gets to communicate more and more of his goodness to you. He rejoices in doing you good, is what Jeremiah says. God's not sick of you. God's not tired of you. He's not tired of your petitions. Rather, the more you ask of him, the more glory he gets by shining out his goodness and pouring it upon you. There's no place for us to think, like, I know God's busy, so I'm not going to bother him with this today. That fundamentally understands how much delight God has in being God, and how much delight he has in being good. I, mean, I think it's fair to say that God enjoys our prayers far more than we do. So let the goodness of God supercharge your prayer life. Approach him in light of his goodness. Or just consider how we relate to others, right? Just like God's goodness causes us to love him, it should also cause us to love our neighbors, to do good to them, right? If God's goodness caused Christ to leave the glories of heaven to do good to us, shouldn't we be able to sacrifice a few of our conveniences to do good for others? Galatians 6, verse 9 and 10 exhort us, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. And maybe we call this sacrifice for the good of others. Or maybe we just call this seeking out our own joy. Because didn't Jesus say it's more blessed to give than to receive? And so in being good and doing good to others, they get a benefit. But we get a greater one. We get to rejoice not only in the character of God's goodness, but also that character overflowing and spilling even onto our own character. We get to see the goodness of God as he transforms our lives to be like him. So we get to do good and we get to be good and we get to rejoice in all of that. And as we give our time and our resources and our wisdom and encouragement and counsel, as we give our very selves to other people, it's never going to be a net loss for us. No, we find joy. It's more blessed to give than receive because God is good and he sets up his world so that goodness is overflowing as we become more like him. And so here's what I'm trying to to get at, right? Our lives aren't, I don't know, mundane, generic, disappointing, monotonous. Whatever word you throw on a, a third life crisis, I guess, or wherever you are in life. Where, you know, we get up, we go to work, we feed our kids, we clean up the dishes, we go to bed, we do it again in the morning. Weekends come, finally, we can do the other things we've been needing to do for six and a half years. Our lives don't feel suffocating on us because we think too much of the goodness of God. That is for sure. No, it's when we remember God's goodness and all that He is and that we live in light of his goodness, that we truly flourish in the way that God created us to be. So let us remember that God is good all the time, and that all the time, God is good. Thank you.